0: When the government starts intervening monetarily and starts distorting our money, it starts to misalign with reality. And so this is where what I would say is something like Bitcoin, for the first time in history, we have a currency with a fixed supply. The government cannot intervene. The government cannot decide, you know what, we need to prop up this business. We need to do this here. We need to inject capital to support these people. Ultimately, what ends up happening is you allow creative destruction to take place. You allow the market to compete, which allows value to rise up. And that, I believe, is something that is so important for value creation and prosperity in society.
1: This is the Blue Collar Bitcoin Podcast, a show where average Joe firefighters explore the most important monetary technology of the 21st century.
2: We talk Bitcoin, we talk finance, and we talk shit. Thanks for joining us here on BCB for another banger of an episode. Today, we're joined by Seb Bunny, author of The Hidden Cost of Money. Seb has been on our podcast a whopping 11 times now. Daz and Seb joined us throughout our Bitcoin Basics series, and we could not ask for better assistance to elucidate the basics of Bitcoin. Seb himself is a special individual. He's intelligent, articulate, humble, and willing to absolutely sling with our sense of humor. I know I've said this in the past, but I feel strongly it's true. The combination of intelligence and humility is an absolute killer combo. Of course, the focus of this episode is his book. Dan and I have read and feel strongly that this is one of the finest books on the topic of money that we have read. We cannot recommend it highly enough. If you have a friend or relative that you've been trying to orange pill unsuccessfully, this book is the ticket. Seb manages to not mention the word Bitcoin until page 305. The reader has been good and prepped for a solution to the problems presented by that stage of the book. Basically, if Seb can't orange pill your friend, cut your losses and move on. Now, if you've already been accumulating Bitcoin and you are sitting on a stack, save yourself by grabbing a cold card Mark IV and get your Bitcoin off of the exchanges. The shiny new ETFs are in the wild, but that is a Bitcoin product. Not Bitcoin. If you're smart, you accumulate real Bitcoin and you get those seed words onto a cold card Mark IV. Firewalled from all the threats of an internet connected computer, don't pay 30 basis points to hold fake Bitcoin. Buy a cold card and custody the real thing. One last note before we start we have a coupon code BCB for 10% off tickets to Bitcoin 2024 in Nashville. That is coupon code BCB.
0: But you know what? Because well, you asked a question about the guy's gold, and yeah, I I'm like halfway through out of the shrugged and it's it's interesting. Most Bitcoiners freaking love it. I cannot find my flow in it. It's it is a
2: rough book because it's so f- it's it's probably three times longer than it needs to be r- realistically, and it's very rough in the first hundred to hundred fifty pages. I think, yeah. but once you kind of I think it's like Francisco Deconia's speech. From there, or it's John Galt's speech. I'm not sure which one it is. They both have really... Those two speeches, actually, I think that book can be encapsulated and just reading those two speeches because they're both, I don't know, 20, 30, 40, maybe even 50 pages long. Yeah. They encapsulate the, the theory of the book yep. succinctly. And if you read those, you you can put the book away. Well, I ended up opinion.
0: listening to... Someone actually recommended the love reading the money speech on YouTube. Have you guys listened to that?
2: I haven't listened to it, but I've read that speech. It's
0: so and breed love reading it because they've got like animation and video stuff over the top. It's freaking awesome, but um, yeah, I ended up going because it talks about the the guy's Gulch, and I was like, "What? Uh, what is this again?" And so I ended up looking up on Google, and so just to confirm, if you guys were to ask that question, are you basically talking about a productive group going off and doing their own thing? in society exactly. because they no longer feel that they, they, they add value to well, they're being. Their contributions yep. are being there.
2: They use the term like moochers or leeches in the <laughs> book, but it's effectively the reason I, your book has talks about so much of how the money, the monetary system is affecting pers- people on a personal level. And in our system, in my estimation, it's mostly taxation on a heavy, heavy handed taxation and then inflation, right? You're getting squeezed on both ends. In the book, it's a lot more forceful. It's like eminent domain. We're taking your company and now it's in government hands and it's being mismanaged. And these clowns who take over management have no idea how this company operates. So they start running it into the ground. Mm-hmm. And you start seeing you know, railroad cars coming off tracks. You see a lot of infrastructure problems. And the people that created these companies who actually know how to run them are just like, you know what? I'm just going to fuck off. Like, we're going to pack up our shit. We're going to go start our own little civilization full of people that are productive and they don't mooch off of each totally. other. And that's how I would describe the, the book generally.
0: Well, you know what? Even, even just, if we do get into the question, I'll mention it again. But like, from the pandemic, it's the first time in my life, prior to, or prior to the pandemic, I would always question, I'd be like, what are these communes? Like, Why do people feel the need to get away from society? And after the pandemic, I've been like, I can totally understand why you'd start a commune. And yeah. actually, I would probably start a commune with a group of close friends that have like minded views.
1: For sure. I think I just read the Galt
2: speech. I think that's all I've read. Yeah, I think I sent that to you years ago and told you yeah. to read this. Yeah. Like I said, it's that's that's good enough. You've read the book then? No, I
0: just read the speech. No, no you've now read the, you've oh, read, yeah, you've read the yeah. book. Oh, yeah, of course. I can just <laughs> yeah. tell
1: everybody, just pretend. Yep. I combed it. Hi- heavy highlights. I've been over it two to three times. It's a seminal work. <laughs> it is seminal. <laughs> um, all right, I'll kick this off folks welcome in uh we are delighted to have seb bunny in the studio we'll call it a studio it's actually mm. our basements i'm looking at like kids toys and a christmas tree that's it's not put away but it's a studio whatever yeah josh you're not really firing on all cylinders though josh and i both worked yesterday at different stations and i saw those tones dropping down south where he was
2: and he got spit roasted you doing Dude, okay I got, I got plugged last night like solid two and a half hours of sleep so yeah i'm yeah. I don't usually feel the aftermath of this until about noon. Mm. So we've got about an hour and 50 minutes before I start really precipitously falling off of a cliff here. So I am the exact, we get after
1: it, exact same way. I can get off at a hard night at the firehouse, come home, kind of boot and rally with some coffee, feel energetic, mm. feel yep. like I'm contributing to the family. And then it hits about one or two in the afternoon and I become a
2: complete asshole. Dude, we had this, Jim and I had this game, which you saw because we saw you at the hospital on another ambulance yesterday where we were busting each other's balls. Sorry, Seb. We're just totally <laughs> going off on a dude. He's listened to this show. He's we're, used to it. So the, been on the, here nine the system times. coordinator for our EMS system sits in this <laughs> office adjacent to the paramedic room. And our game this yesterday was, was to call each other out for any mistake that we had made or even made up mistakes. It'd be like, nor her name's Noreen Noreen. Like Jim didn't do a 12 lead on this patient that it was clearly indicated on or, He was telling her that I wasn't doing cabnography, and she was just like, not sure how to take it. If we're making fun of this EMS system or if we're making fun of each other or her, but she was laughing. It was fun. And then it just, you know, at about 6 PM, it stopped being funny. It started getting serious. Like, holy shit, this day is getting out of control. And it it continued to,
1: I straight up told her that, uh, Josh and this other gym, I told her their ambulance was not up to snuff. And I recommended an, an impromptu scan of yeah, the advanced life support rig to make sure everything was in check. Um, of course, that could it could get was. dangerous. By the way, we were playing roulette with that, Josh. That could, yeah, we that were. boomerang could come back and hit us straight in the forehead. I'll tell you that it could, it sure could. Wait, I have one more note before we actually talk to our guest, and that is, and this is, it's gonna, it's a joke. It'll be funny, I think, but it's actually serious too. I'm like clockwork in the morning with taking a shit. Absolute clockwork. I, I about five ten minutes in, it's coming. That has not happened this morning. I'm a little bit confused, a little bit concerned. I actually, if went you're asking in, for a
2: break, that is not on the table. I went like, in. We are be- going to make you shit your pants.
1: Before coming down here, I actually went in there just to see if something marinating wanted to come out of the fridge, and it didn't. So yeah, I actually forewarning: if I have a, a speedy emergency exit, it's because something's knocking on the door. We'll get you some. Depends. It's
0: interesting because the start of this month, one of the New Year's resolutions, I eat predominantly animal-based and shit regularly. Oh yeah, de- definitely. <laughs> and up until this month, I decided, you know what, I'm going full full carnivore for this month. And my one, I I cannot get over chocolate. Chocolate is just is my freaking God's gift to the earth. I'm there and for you. Yeah. I so I haven't eaten chocolate all of this month. And then last night, I went over to a friend's place for dinner, and the friend had made like a chocolate brownie, and I was just like. I can't have any. And then they're all eating it. And I was just like, I got to have a tiny bit. And I had a tiny bit. And after having no processed sugar for the last like week and a bit, it destroyed me. My gut was just like, what are you eating? And, was, and it, it blows me away how our body becomes just so accustomed to this crap. Yeah. We have a guy.
2: It's funny you say that because we have a guy who is not exactly in you know prime shape and his diet, I don't know what it consists of, but what I've seen him cook is not good stuff. You feed him a salad, and he's gonna have a tummy ache. Threat. Like he cannot eat greens. He is so acclimated to eating garbage. That you, feed, <laughs> Dan, Dan knows exactly what I'm talking about here. You feed this guy like a salad, like a nice, fresh, light salad for lunch. His day is completely destroyed from salad. <laughs> that's, yeah, th- th- that's sad. This
1: is a firefighter maneuver to the old tummy ache. Uh, charade where when people feed you things you don't like, you fi- you you fake a tummy ache. You've seen it garlic. with other guys too, right, Josh? Yeah. Oh yeah. We got a guy with a fake garlic allergy and he, you, you can feed, he will powerhouse pizza. Okay. Deep dish Chicago style pizza. The amount, the number of cloves in one of those things, Josh, we're probably in the it's seven to 12 clove range in a mm. deep dish pizza. He it's will, lasagna. He will powerhouse one of those pies. You put a little bit of like a Szechuan sauce that's got maybe half a clove in it into a stir fry. All of a sudden, guy's got a tummy ache because of the garlic. So but he yeah, comes a- over and he
2: scopes out what you're cooking. I've been cooking and he comes in like looking for garlic and he'll leave <laughs> and I'll just dump garlic in this thing just to like test him out. And he never has a problem with it when he doesn't know what's in there. So
0: we know where that is. Oh, the old garlic is the worst. My, my ex-girlfriend years ago, her granddad used to be this, this old dude that used to live in this tiny little shack on the side of the beach. And uh, used to have a shag rope that was like four inches thick. I, I don't know how he vacuums that thing. It was gross. But he used to eat garlic every single day, just raw garlic. Because it was just like, keeps the immune system strong. But his house freaking stunk. It was just oh, disgusting. Yeah. Brutal. Brutal.
2: Yeah, we do uh, have to get around to talking about uh, this amazing book that you've written, The Hidden yeah. Cost of Money. And I keep telling people about it and confusing the the title of your book with broken money. Because the titles are... You know, Sorry, somewhat guys. similar to the building in them. And well, I mean, I still think like high praise that you're in, you know, you're in the same ballpark as Lynn Alden. I wholeheartedly think this book is really, really well done. And the fact that you were able to avoid saying the word Bitcoin until last I think it was page three hundred and five before you ever mentioned it. Um spectacular, my friend. Honestly, it, really it, well done.
0: It, it truly, truly means well. Cause I I I think your guys' insights and the value you contribute to the uh, the community is just phenomenal, and so it, it means a lot. You guys took the time to give it a read; it really does. Dude,
1: the compliments that Preston Pish gave you were really incredible on his show. He made the same comparison Josh did. He said that I think he might have gone as far as to say his, his two favorite books of the year, two of his favorite books of the year, were this and Broken Money. they' they have similarities, but in a lot of ways, they are different. And I'm just I know you've done a lot of writing. Writing is not easy in compiling a book that's this organized, well put together, and has a thesis that's cohesive, but also explores a lot of different angles. It is way easier said than done. H- hat tip, dude. It's- Talk to us about the process of writing it.
2: Yeah. How long did this thing take to get done from beginning to end, you think? It's, it's a tough you, sure you one know. because a lot of it,
0: the actual writing time, I started it in November of 2022 and finished it in November of 2023, but... That doesn't take into account one that I've probably got. I have like, a, if you ever come over and I've shown Daz this and I've shown a few other friends this, I have this like note-taking app that I use. And every single time I read a book, I take notes and I have this way of distilling down notes. So I have every single book that I've read in note form. Wait,
2: what? Sorry to interrupt. What note-taking app? Because I'm always interested in good ones. I've, there's so many of them. Oh man. Which one do you use? We
0: could, I, I'll do a, a separate call with you guys and I can show you this one if you want. And it's called Obsidian. And it's just a free app that you can kind of download. And it uses just basic, what are called markdown files, which are basically just like a text file. So you can convert it between, whether it's your laptop, whether it's your phone. But what is amazing about it is that you can start to, the way I think about learning is that our brain, the human brain is phenomenal at kind of piecing together random abstract ideas. It's phenomenal being creative and connecting dots between things, but it's not very good at remembering specific points of information or remembering the Mm. dates of things, or uh, this little specific question. Especially mine. (laughs) (laughs) And um, so what I try to do, there's this thing called um, building a second brain, and there's a guy called Tiago Forte that kind of started this whole idea. And the whole idea is basically to, when you take notes, take notes on what interests you, and then distill those notes down into your your own words. And what you start to do with this note-taking app is you start to kind of build a structure of, uh, like a scaffolding that supports your brain. So it takes off all of the facts, and then your brain can just go and piece together all these random ideas. And so I kind of started this around probably six or seven years ago. And I now have about three, 400 books of content, podcasts, like documentaries, you name it, that I've taken notes on. And it just allows you to, when I'm writing, I'll be like, okay, I think this piece is together with this. And then all I have to do is go into my note-taking app and it's ordered like, a library, like a Dewey Decimal System. I can find the topic and then I can find content to fill it in and content to back it up. So I have all that information from all of the books. So although the book took a year to write, the actual content is probably 10 years of content condensed into one year of writing. But what's also the one thing I'll mention in this, we were talking about it very, very briefly, Dan, about kind of the spirituality side of things. I actually don't really attribute the book to myself. I don't feel like I wrote it. And the reason why I say that is because it took me about two weeks to write 95% of the book. And I wrote it between the hours of like one o'clock and five o'clock in the morning. And I would wake up in the in the middle of the night and all of a sudden the information would just flood in and I'd be like... This chapter needs to have this, 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 and this into it, and I'd just write it down, and I'd start structuring the chapters in the early morning, in the early hours of the morning, and then all of that extra time. So after the two weeks of initially getting the whole narrative, I ended up spending the rest of the year basically just distilling that down and adding to the content. But the whole narrative came to me, so I feel like I was tapping into the collective unconscious rather than tapping into my own mind.
1: One in five a.m. So then, what did did you go to sleep then?
0: What was the order of play there? It would. It's interesting because there's, um, I think it's Picasso uh, Picasso and Einstein. They realized that they were most creative and they were tapping into kind of this collective knowledge uh, when they were just waking up. And so what they would actually do is they would go to sleep, but they would hold a set of keys in their hand over a metal plate. And then as they fell asleep, they would drop the keys onto the metal plate, which would wake them back up into this creative state. And they would do this over yeah. and over and over again to come up with a lot of their ideas. And although I wasn't doing that, what I thought was fascinating is my dog, for a, that two week period, had a stomach ache and basically was shitting all over the rug. So every like freaking two hours of the night, <laughs> she'd wake me up. I'd have to go put her outside and then I'd be like, that, Chapter one. Chapter that two. sounds a
2: lot more like the nights Dan and I experienced between 1 and 5 a.m. at the firehouse people <laughs> shitting on the rug. Um, yeah. The, yeah. What you just said is interesting because I was reading something about Nikola Tesla the other day and the ideas he had, some of the most ingenious inventions would come to him almost as an image, at least the way he described it in, a, I believe, what is an autobiography by him. Like in, entire schematics would just appear in his mind. He had like a photographic memory. And they would be fleeting. So he would have to get this stuff down quickly. And most of them, if not all of them, worked exactly as they appeared in his mind after they were you know, compiled together to be the machines that he designed. There is something very spiritual you know, quasi spiritual about the way a lot of people have these, uh, reverences, you know, it's it's interesting about the way the human mind works, the subconscious kind of just pruning through all these things. And then it kind of coalesces into exactly what you were looking for at the right time or, you know, at two o'clock in the morning.
1: Groman told us when he was on here too, that it's similar for him. A lot of his ideas come to him wicked early in the morning. And he'll exit the bedroom and his wife will be like, where the heck are you going? He's going downstairs to write it. I don't know what he said. 3, 4 a.m. For me, it's inconvenient when I think my best. The two spots that I seriously feel that I am the most creative are driving a vehicle, listening to good music and on runs outside. Both areas are terrible for note taking. And I've had some heart wrenching ideas get lost where Early in a run, I felt like I had this good idea, and then i I think to myself, "Okay, Daniel, remember this thing."
2: And then, dude, you have AirPods, right? You can just tell Siri, "Hey, make a note."
1: I have. I need to start doing that better. Yeah. Yeah. I wow, t- mind blowing. That that's actually a helpful tip because I'll. The problem is I'm I'm listening to. Well, yeah, I could do that while listening to music, well, so right? Yeah, stop the
0: music. Technology these days, these young kids. Because that's sub, it's, it's um, interesting you say but, that because that's actually. I have this dog and I live right next to the forest. And I would say I spend most of my time, I'm fully completely retarded, so I struggle with when it comes to reading. <laughs> I have books next to my bed that have honestly been there for like three years and I can barely get through them. I should even say, I've actually never read my book, physical form from start to finish because I can't. I'm, and so it's one of those things where I listen to all of my books and I just go and walk through the forest with the dog. And when you're moving and you're getting that blood slowing and you're in a non-stimulating environment, that is when I find so much like idea generation happens. And that's where I, t- I take a ton of notes straight into this note-taking app uh, when I'm walking the dog, when I'm in the forest, when I'm in nature.
2: Yeah. The, the comment you just made about being fully retarded, it just made me think of this reference we had this morning at the firehouse. I had this joke going the other day with a guy named Tyler on the ambulance together. And I was like, hey, Tyler. And he's a very literal, very, very rigid type personality where when you say something, he takes it very literally. So I was like, have you ever considered that maybe your special needs and everyone's being nice to you? And he's like, yes, yes, I've considered that. (laughs) Like no pause. No, like it's almost like the movie shutter Island when like, he's just being cordoned around by somebody who's like, you know, helping him out. Like this is a pretend world you're living in, but you don't realize it. And everyone else is just kind of curtailing the world to you. Like, yeah, I've had that thought. It's
1: like, well, that, that was ruminating firmly upstairs. Oh yeah. It's not that idea you were just introduced to. All right. Here's my first question about the book and take it wherever you want it. There's tons of time spent in and around Bitcoin talking about the history of money. You spend some time in your book kind of briefly going through it. What aspect of the history of money and value transfer do you think is most misunderstood? And let's go two categories. First, by the general populace. You can hit that quickly. But then maybe second, By Bitcoiners themselves. What stood out to you distilling some of this talking about
0: monetary history? You know what? It's a tough one because I think there's so many different characteristics that do make a difference. But if I was to distill it down to one characteristic that makes the most difference, it would be a predictable supply. And a predictable supply, I say that because the moment we start intervening, we start to dilute the signals of the world around us and it impairs our ability to make important decisions. And so I'll give you an example. One of the things I talk about, and I talk about this in chapter two, is why intervention basically begets intervention and why intervention just does not work altogether. And I kind of explain it in kind of four stages. Those four stages are a misalignment to reality, the death of creative destruction, the capital flow distortion, and then decision-making impairment. And I'll explain these quickly and then I'll kind of bring it back to your point. So first off, a misalignment to reality. We know that technology is always trying to drive down prices. And Jeff Booth explains this so well in The Price of Tomorrow. Technology is always trying to get more for less. You just need to look at Blockbuster. For how much time you had to spend going driving to Blockbuster, then spending freaking half an hour in the store trying to pick which DVD you get, and then leaving, driving home, driving back, dropping off the movie, driving back home. The amount of time and energy you committed to just watching one movie. And now we have Netflix. And you can pay that same amount and watch that 100,000 movies for basically the same price. So technology is always trying to drive down prices. But today, the world we live in, prices continue to rise. And why is that happening? Well, it's because we have a misalignment to reality. Our monetary system, the government continues to intervene, which devalues the currency, which then means prices rise as opposed to fall. But that also means that as a corporation, if you're a corporation and you've taken on a bunch of debt, and all of a sudden prices are falling, then that means your margins are going to get squeezed, and then you're going to struggle to service your debt. And that leads to insolvency, breakdown. So that leads us to the next stage, the death of creative destruction. If as a corporation, your margins are getting squeezed, but you're a big corporation in society, and if you were to go down, then a lot of people are going to lose their jobs. Well, what happens? The government starts intervening, and it starts stimulating the economy, it starts bailing out companies. So this is now the death of creative destruction. You're not allowing competition to take place in the arena. You're not allowing value to rise up because you're actually supporting companies that are not actually offering value or that are being fiscally irresponsible. So all of a sudden, as investors, as day-to-day people, you don't actually know which companies are uh, offering value and which ones are not because they're all being bailed out. And then the next one is capital flow distortion. If you don't know which companies are offering value and you start directing capital to these companies that are fiscally irresponsible, companies that should not exist, you are now, capital is flowing to places that are actually being unproductive as opposed to places that are being productive. So you're now altering where capital is flowing in society. And then finally, decision-making impairment. If you as, whether it is a central planner which obviously we probably disagree with, whether it's a central planner or even just as an individual who's starting a business, how can you make sound decisions if you don't know what the free unimpeded market deems as valuable? How can you make sound decisions if you don't even know what companies should or should not exist? And what are the actual risks in our economy given that we don't even know what companies should be alive, which companies should not be? So all of a sudden, what you start to realize is that when the government starts intervening monetarily and starts distorting our money, it starts to misalign with reality. And so this is where what I would say is something like Bitcoin, for the first time in history, we have a currency with a fixed supply. The government cannot intervene. The government cannot decide, you know what, we need to prop up this business. We need to do this here. We need to inject capital to support these people. Ultimately, what ends up happening is you allow creative destruction to take place. You allow the market to compete, which allows value to rise up. And that, I believe, is something that is so important for value creation And prosperity in society, instead of what we are getting, the inverse. When the government continues to intervene, manipulate supply, we get the inverse, which is capital continues to flow to unproductive businesses, which is just value destructive. It's totally the opposite. I, when I was reading
1: some of the sections of the book, you're mentioning, something came to mind from my own past experience. I had a different career before becoming a firefighter. I was a Class A PGA member, and I managed a golf facility, and. One of the dynamics I saw, at least in Illinois, and if there's any golf pros listening, I think there's going to be some here, here's, is that there. if we just take the public golf course arena, okay, non-private, there are private sector courses that are you know, funded by private investment and run for profit. And then there's public and municipal golf courses. And when I was in the golf business, it was struggling a lot. It was post-recession The golf business was not doing well. Right now, it's booming a lot more. But there was this dynamic that was playing out where all of these public municipal golf courses continued to exist. And a lot of the privately funded ones were ceasing to exist. And on top of that, a lot of those courses that were failing were the better golf courses. And the reason for that is because the municipal courses have a bailout if they have a a red down year. Mm -hmm. Villages want whatever village golf course is not going to cease to exist. You'll see people show up to town hall, pissed people, you know, it's it's deeply ingrained in the community. So you had this, this basic, the safety net, right? If you had a terrible year, if weather was bad, whatever your excuse was, the course was going to be there because the pocketbook of the municipality was going to be opened up unbelievably practical example of this playing out on a smaller scale. The the better design courses, in my opinion, a lot of them were struggling and some of them do not exist anymore because they didn't have a bailout. Mm -hmm. And as a whole, the product declined in this area because of that dynamic. I know some of it's rebounding, but I I thought of my own personal experience. And this, I think, before I hand it back off, this is one of those things that people hear and intuitively they go, yeah, that that makes sense. I think very few people have fully digested the magnitude of dismissing creative destruction Mm -hmm. and allowing zombies to continue to exist. When that perpetuates for a long Mm -hmm. period of time, it is a big deal across
0: a wide spectrum. Oh man. And what do you go, Josh?
2: I was just going to say, I think the problem is also is that most people outside of the scope of their own experience... Like Dan that came to you because you had that experience in you know the private golf courses or you know golf courses in general but most people in the private sector only have an understanding of the very narrow aspect of the economy and they could probably point out examples in that you know narrow aspect that would be very similar but yep. none of us or very few of us have this wide mm-hmm. swath of information where we could say oh shit here's mismanagement on a wider scale there's just no way to do it without having that data which is not
0: available to most people outside of their You know, discipline. And Dan, you bring up that's like a perfect example. And you'd mentioned the word zombie. And for those that are kind of unfamiliar with this term zombie, it's basically a company that is not able to cover its debt service payments. So if it's not able to cover its debt service payments in a free market, it would break down. But instead, it is subsidized, whether that is by direct intervention because it's getting bailouts, or it's being subsidized by the central bank suppressing interest rates, which then allow it to obtain capital overly cheaply. To continue functioning. And what is interesting is, like, in the economy today, well, the last chart that I saw, I think it was July of last year, there's like 21 or 22% of all companies publicly traded are zombie companies. So that's one in five companies are basically subsidized by artificially cheap rates or they're subsidized by direct bailouts. And this is even worse when you start looking at there's an index called the Russell 2000. It's 2000 of the small cap companies in the US, 40% of companies in the Russell 2000 are zombie companies. This is unbelievable amounts of capital unbelievable. What what people don't realize is that if you are a company, let's just say, I don't know, you're some little golf company as you're talking about, and now you want to be able to kind of expand your golf course, you want to be able to start investing money into kind of creating this better golf course. Instead, your money goes to competing with other entities that should not exist. And capital is flowing to those entities instead of you, even though you offer better product simply because those companies exist and maybe they're closer to the person, you name it. So all of a sudden, there's that capital flow distortion. Capital starts flowing to areas that are actually incredibly unproductive, and it basically stops flowing or is impaired flowing to those that are actually offering value.
2: Yeah. On this topic, um, I was surprised. I don't follow Tesla very closely, but you mentioned it. Uh, I believe it was in this chapter. And <laughs> you mentioned the, ex- the price to earnings ratio of Tesla at its peak in the most crazy FOMO period of time. I didn't look back at the charts to see when it was, but I'm guessing it was probably in 2021 it- when everything was wild. Thirteen hundred—the average PE over a long period of time for you know most companies is like twenty-one. I think you said. thirteen hundred P, and then you you mentioned some of the how they're subsidized by the government, you know, for green energy uh, subsidies and all that, and the fact that they were worth at their peak more than General Motors, Ford, Fiat, and like an assortment of European car manufacturers all combined uh, is is a wild statistic. Obviously, there's a lot of people that are just, you know, using this as a a speculative vehicle, but it's just wild to see those numbers. Like, they just make no sense whatsoever. And, and the only way to rationalize that besides just pure speculation is that people are seeing something more than just a car manufacturer, you know? Mm-hmm. Kind of like back in the early 2000s, everyone said, well, why would you buy Google? They're not profitable. It doesn't make any sense. Well, 20 years later, in in hindsight, it makes a ton of sense because... Maybe some of those people understood the ad, the ad, you know, the way they were going to sell ads to literally the entire world and own that space. But there was no guarantee, <laughs> you know, um, unless there's something Tesla's producing, unless, you know, Optimus, the robot, is going to take over and we're going to be having it mow our lawns. <laughs> I don't know how in the world anyone's valuing this thing. And just another example of oh. a company that's way outside the bounds of what should be rational.
1: And I think a point that's worth addressing is that. This, back to sort of the monetary history idea, this is a really new or relatively new phenomena that this amount of intervention is allowed for. Like, to go higher level, fiat, as we've said many times on this show, full frontal fiat, Mm -hmm. as we'll call our current system here, with zero tether to anything fixed, is an experiment. It has not Mm -hmm. gone on in its current form for all that long. And both of you, both your book and Lynn's book do a decent job of highlighting like why that is the world needed instant settlement, right? As the digital age ushered in, we needed instantaneous lightning fast settlement. And that ushered in a centralizing force without accountability. And so this is experiments are fragile things that are being tried out are not as robust as stuff that has really stood the, stood the test of time and when you zoom out beyond just your lifetime you realize this is fairly novel oh, and here comes here comes a creature that is calling the bluff to a large extent on this experiment that is enabling all of these ripples of fragility mm-hmm. through our economic systems as we just highlighted with really significant capital flow destruction and a lot of other things you've talked about in your book. But I, I think I think if I was to answer the question of like what's most misunderstood about our monetary system right now by most
0: people, it's how new this model really is. Mm-hmm. No, I think you make a really good point. And what is also interesting is you take just take Warren Buffett for instance. Warren Buffett, obviously everyone knows who Warren Buffett is, is one of the best performing investors of all time. But if you actually look at in the last 20 years, kind of since the 2000 tech boom, he's actually largely underperformed the market. And the reason why is from the 70s down, which it was for, in the 70s onwards, he basically had a high interest rate market, which when we've got high interest rates, all of a sudden value flows to those that are actually creating value. You'll notice yes. that if you are a tech company, if you're a growth company that's not turning a profit, it's incredibly hard to survive in this type of environment because all of a sudden you've got to service these debt payments, but you don't actually have capital coming in. And the inverse is true when interest rates are suppressed which is arguably what we've had since the over the last 20 years we've had the opposite market and warren buffett has struggled and in, in this type of environment value suffers and instead capital goes towards all of these growth these tech companies because these companies are able to borrow cheaply and extend their runway before they're actually offering value to society but the problem is we know that 90 percent of startups fail so if 90 percent of startups fail and you are then allowing this company to Prolong its inevitable decline, prolong its inevitable decline, you are destroying trillions of dollars of capital in society. And we see this across like Ceranos or you look at WeWork or like any of these huge, huge multi billion dollar companies that have just basically gone into the ether.
1: Mm. Mm. 90% of startups fail. Yeah, that's a high number, but that's how evolution goes down, my friends. If animals don't get devoured, eaten, and starved to death out in the wild, there's gonna be a lot of invasive species. And we're we're seeing that.
2: So how do we, when we want to bring this closer to home as well? Like people want to understand, like this sounds maybe far away for a lot of people talking about zombie companies and Tesla being overvalued from or subsidies mm-hmm. and all that, but how does this affect the common everyday person in their everyday life? So when this money is manipulated in the way that it is, and when it's a fiat system that has never existed for the period of time that it is at this point.
0: So one of the examples I give in the book that I think really blew my mind, and we saw this in real time, is the small business and the individual. So in Canada, during the pandemic, we had this thing called the CERB, it's the Canadian Emergency Response Benefit. And if you had, I think it was something like if you'd seen your income decline 10% because of the pandemic you're entitled to payments of $2,000 a month. And so that that equates to $24,000 a year. Well, if you look at the tax records, you start to realize that 30% of the population earn under $25,000 a year. So if 30% of the population earn under $25,000 a year and they can all of a sudden get $24,000 a year without working, what does that incentivize? Yeah. It incentivizes people to freaking stop working. It incentivizes people to give up and work because they can sit on the couch, watch Netflix, and end up pulling in basically the same amount of income. So all of a sudden, we saw an absolute decimation of small businesses because nobody could find any employment. No one was incentivized to work, and so all of the local small businesses here—they had labor, uh, labor signs in their, were looking for labor signs up in their windows. We saw countless companies on Craigslist looking for jobs, were uh, looking for uh, employees, and we just saw an absolute decimation of the small business market. And at the same time. You also saw this entitlement start growing in these individuals that have been able to sit back and work. And now they're looking for this perfect job to pop up. And so you end up with this, you're now completely altering the dynamic of the workforce, completely impairing the small businesses, which are something like 80% of the, the 70, 80% of the jobs market, just because you've intervened because you think you're doing what is right. But intervention begets intervention. It creates a lot of these symptoms in society that we're seeing. Yeah. you
1: In terms of you talk some about unseen costs, right? A lot of people are so we have boiled, boiled frogs right now, unaware of the environment that they're in. For the uninitiated, what are you hinting at when you talk about unseen costs of our current monetary system? And, and let's make this very household,
0: for sure, individual type uh, type. So exploration. One of the things when it comes to money is I think it's really easy to get into the big, more financial conversation, the macroeconomic conversation, and we struggle to actually look at it on just a personal level, on a social level. And so throughout yes. the book, through, there's a bunch of different chapters, and each chapter I dive into a different subject. But first off, you can even just look at it on a behavior level. And I think it's really important to discuss money on a behavior level. And in the book, I basically just uh, I touch on uh, three, what is it, four different, uh, three different um, kind of subjects at which it impacts us. And the first one is our time preference. And for those that are not kind of down the Bitcoin rabbit hole and are familiar with time preference, you can think of it as, do we have a high time preference where we're just servicing immediate needs, we're looking to meet instant gratification, whatever it is in our immediate vicinity, or do we have a low time preference where we're looking to the future, we're looking to build stability, prosperity? How can I set myself up and my family for the future? And what is interesting is when money is worth less over time because governments continue to intervene, what does that do? Does it incentivize us to save? No. It doesn't incentivize us to save, it incentivizes us to consume and spend in this present moment because our purchasing power is its maximum in this present moment. So it's now shifting our time preference towards higher and higher and higher time preference, servicing immediate needs, as opposed to when you've got something like Bitcoin, where purchasing power is increasing over time, the inverse is true. All of a sudden you're incentivized to save. If you're incentivized to save instead of consume, now you start looking long-term. You start thinking about, okay, if I'm saving, my purchasing power is going to increase, what can I do for my family? What can I do for my community? And so that is huge. Mm. So you can start to see how it's altering behavior. And then the next one is compassion and altruism. What's, there's, in, in psychology, there's this um, pyramid called Maslow's uh, hierarchy of needs. And you can think of this pyramid as your base layer needs are at the bottom. You cannot service your upper needs, so uh, friendship, romance, uh, self-actualization until you meet your basic needs of food and shelter. But when our money is losing value over time, And when our cost of living is rising, when rent is going through the roof, when food prices are growing exponentially, all of a sudden it becomes harder and harder and harder to get by. And so if it's getting harder and harder and harder to get by, there's a saying that a guy called Gabo Maté uses and he says, um, uh, fear closes the aperture of awareness. When we start to get uh, fearful, when we start to get threatened, all of a sudden our vision starts narrowing and we're trying to just Mm. meet our immediate needs. So compassion, Mm. altruism falls out the window. And so that's not to say it's the case for everyone, but I would say the vast majority of people are simply just trying to get by. And we know in the US, 60% of people live paycheck to paycheck. Those individuals are hit hardest when prices rise, when they can't afford rent. And then the final one is meaninglessness and apathy. In society, when house prices are just going exponential, when you're trying to save and get ahead, but all of a sudden your paychecks, your savings rate cannot even come close to affording the down payment on a house, meaninglessness starts to set in. Because how can we get ahead? If we're, if we're struggling to afford things. And what's interesting in psychology is there's another kind of term which is called our locus of control. And we either have an internal or an external, it's kind of like a spectrum. But you can think of it as an external is you believe the world kind of governs you. You believe that you don't have control over your actions, you don't have control over the, uh, the path of your life. And people that have an external locus of control tend to have much worse health outcomes. They have high rates of anxiety, high rates of depression, The inverse is also true. If you believe you you have an internal locus of control, you believe that you have control over your environment, you have control over your future, you have control over where you want to head. You have much greater health outcomes. You have much higher confidence. You have much better. uh, uh, You've got much lower rates of obesity, much lower rates of depression, much lower rates of anxiety. This is profound. And money, you can see, shifts this acutely. I've had friends, and I see it in Whistler all the time. I have friends that. They've been here for a few years, having an amazing time, and then they start realizing actually, I am never gonna be able to afford a house here. I'm never gonna be able to get by. And then you start to see, they start to kind of just give in to life. Apathy starts to set in. Nihilism starts to set in because they're just like, what is the point? A house is freaking 2 million, 3 million, $4 million. How am I ever gonna be able to afford this thing? And so they start to kind of give up on life and they start to kind of almost resent those around them. And so it's just challenging. Mm. There's just kind of three examples of how money shapes who we are and how we show up in this world.
1: Yeah, really well said. Really yeah. well said. One observation I've made from being around Bitcoin for a while now is how committed legitimate Bitcoiners, those that really understand what's going on here, how committed they are to saving and remaining cash flow positive. I was really into personal finance before discovering Bitcoin. I was harping in the short time I was at the firehouse. I was harping my old job. I was harping. I would read a lot of investment and personal finance books. And my message was overwhelmingly simple and still something I stand by 100%, which is that nobody knows how to save money. Mm -hmm. Nobody. I mean, it's, it's crazy the extent to which this holds true in broader society. Juxtapose that against Bitcoin. It's incredible, the difference. And Josh, I'm sure you'd agree, even just at totally. where we work, behaviors are changing. The way guys talk about saving once they get into Bitcoin changes, the discussion on cars changes completely as people get introduced to Bitcoin. It, it inserts a sense of investment, hope and interest. And yes. the, the other point I'll make is obey the math. That That's something I remember saying before that The challenge is people will say, Oh, it's getting so much harder. Homes are so much more expensive. I understand that. I sympathize with that. That is a reality. That does not change the math. It's getting harder. The treadmill is speeding up, which means you are going to have to run faster because if you obey the math now and stack Bitcoin, the math may exponentially reward you in the future. But if you are somebody that's just throwing up the white flag and saying, Fuck it, I can't save money. Look in the mirror. You may have to make some really challenging decisions. You may have to move. You may have to move to a different area. Your kids may not have the quote unquote opportunities that you think they deserve if they're in tons of private lessons and shit. I don't know what the practical application is for each person. I'm just saying you cannot thrive financially if you are cash flow negative your entire freaking life. If you're in the middle of something challenging and finances are tough, my heart goes out to you but you need to do everything in your power to either spend less or make more and fix that. Money does not rule your life, but it it can be a really, really important component. And it it can drag you down as a stressor the older you get if you don't obey the math.
0: No, I, I think that is such a powerful point. And to that point as well, I think some people struggle to understand that in this type of environment, you have to be on the fastest racehorse. And when you look at traditional assets, whether it's real estate, whether it's bonds, whether it's equities, these assets are fully saturated, which means that they've had, they've been around for either thousands of years or hundreds of years. And so capital has pr- largely flowed into these things. They're fully saturated. The only time they go up and down is when the central bank decides to expand monetary supply, <laughs> then they go up yeah. or tighten monetary supply, and then they go down. But why Bitcoin? And the reason why is because we not only have something that is benefiting from when there's monetary expansion, but we also have adoption. There is so little capital in Bitcoin, so we have all of that mm. adoption. We don't have adoption in real estate. We don't have adoption in equities. We don't have adoption in bonds. But there's an interesting point that I'll make, which I think this is one of those moments that really kind of made it click as to like how Bitcoin supports even like the lower class. Is that let's look at real estate, equities, and bonds for a second. Real estate has, on average, annualized something like 7 to 8% over the last 100 years. You look at equities, equities have annualized something like uh, eight to 9% over the last 100 years. Bonds have annualized like five to 6% over the last 100 years. Well, when you start looking at technology, technology is driving down prices at around five to 15% per year. So if we're like kind of mid to upper, so 10% per year, if prices should be falling at 10% per year, if you have a currency with a fixed supply like Bitcoin, all of a sudden you're going to be seeing your purchasing power increase at 10% per year because of technology driving down prices. Well, 10% per year outperforms real estate, outperforms equities, outperforms bonds. So all of a sudden, all of this capital, which is in these assets purely as an inflation hedge, people are funneling into these assets to try and get away from currency debasement. If Bitcoin was a world reserve currency, a lot of that capital would suddenly move back into Bitcoin. Well, how much capital are we talking? Well, the bond market has something like $300 trillion of capital locked in it. The equity market has something like $150, $170 trillion. The real estate market, again, has something like $300 trillion of capital. The derivatives market is like freaking one quadrillion dollars of capital locked in it and this is all as a fight to flee inflation and what is interesting is if you have a currency which just incentivizes saving because it's benefiting from deflation you're now incentivized to simply save in the currency so i would say a large portion of that capital would flood out of these multi multi multi-trillion dollar assets into bitcoin which is worth like what 700 billion dollars like we're talking about something it can go up exponentially from here and I'm not saying this is like a Bitcoin's price target, but more is in just highlighting why Bitcoin has the potential to outperform most asset classes and why, if, if we were to see this world happen, why house prices would actually fall. Because most of the time, where I live here in Whistler, 60% of houses sit empty. And the reason why is because people are simply just putting capital and holding them in real estate because money no longer acts as a store of value. And I think that is profound mm. because houses should be a hell of yeah. a lot cheaper than they are.
1: Mm.
2: Pish was recently on Swan Signal and I'm glad you brought up houses and real estate. Well, a, a lot of people listening or some people listening might not understand some of those broader brushstrokes of like the bond market, some, some of the derivatives markets, all those things might sound a bit, a bit abstract to a lot of people. But when Pish was talking about how this comes home to people on a more fundamental level, it's they look at the house down the street, the one that was half a million dollars in 2020 that is now worth one million million four 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 years later. If you denominated that house in Bitcoin... In 2020, it was say 70 something Bitcoin. You redenominate that house in Bitcoin today, and you're looking at far less. Or we're talking like 30% of that. So, like 20 something Bitcoin for that same house. When people start making that mental calculation and they start making their unit of account in Bitcoin and that their savings vehicle, this all goes back to that um, anxiety that people feel about not getting ahead not getting, you know, no, there's no purchase point for people to feel like they have the potential to ever get ahead. They can then re realign their mental model in a place where they can now feel like they can at least plant their feet on the ground. Mm -hmm. They can, they have a, a shot at the future. And then that mass psychology that you described so eloquently is kind of realigned in a positive way. And we, Dan and I see this, you know, anecdotally all the time. There's, I don't know what the percentage is off the top of my head but there's a good significant percentage of our call volume probably like 10 to 20% There's is psychological issues with people. And I feel like that has over the last 12 years that I've been doing this increased pretty substantially. And it's anxiety, it's people that are you know they're just overwhelmed with with life and you know they're they're having to downgrade into an apartment instead of their house and it's just it's sad to watch otherwise really productive people just kind of cocooning themselves into psychopathy, you know, because they're, they're just crushed seemingly from all angles by, by without them even realizing it, it's a lot, a lot to do with the financial system. There's lots of other variables mixed in there clearly as well, but there is a lot of this that can be directly tied back to the monetary system in ways that most people just don't understand. Totally. I was talking to uh, one of the guys I work with who he's, he's in his mid thirties. He's a millennial, but he's just one of those millennials. That's more boomer than millennial. And the, 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 idea of Bitcoin came up at the coffee table the other morning and he's like, I just don't understand it. <laughs> he's like, it's a Ponzi scheme. I put money on the table, you put money on the table, then you take some off. And I was like, dude, it's way too, like, we don't have enough time. Cause he, he was leaving for me to really try to break this down. But the problem is, is you just don't understand money. Like that's the fundamental problem is that you yeah. don't understand money. And yep. until you have a better understanding of money explaining why this is not a Ponzi scheme to you is really difficult. You know, I gave him the quick like, it's uncensorable people in countries that could be censoring their transactions, that kind of stuff. But that doesn't move people in the first world at all. You could tell that, you know, glassy-eyed look like, I don't give a fuck, man. Zell works. But it's it's the understanding of money, why our money has been so perverse over the last 50 years, and even longer than that, really. But that fundamental understanding, which your book does such a good job of enumerating and walking you through in so many different angles that somebody anybody reading this book if they there is an angle for them in here somewhere when you're working your way through it
1: yeah I I also think it hits on just the scarcity dynamic like yeah. when I asked you that question earlier in the in the show Seb you just said this thing's fucking really scarce and it's not going to change <laughs> and <laughs> and I know that sounds really number stupid. go up I know that sounds really stupid but A workable monetary solution that meets monetary velocity needs, can't change, and is absolutely fixed in supply is an absolute crocodile. This thing is going nowhere. What crocs have been around for thousands of years, right? They're like some of the oldest animals. They don't give a fuck. They breed like hell. They're all over the goddamn place. They're eating kids at Disney. They eat each other. They don't give a fuck. And and I'm telling you... (laughs) this thing is a crocodile, no matter which way you spin it. I mean, and there's so many ways it could go from global reserve asset to just huge asset, but you just can't huge wish this thing away. At. And, and I, I, I seriously bark about this nonstop on here, but it's worth saying again, because I know a lot of our listeners aren't here that often. Price is the great teacher, guys. It's, it sounds awesome and cool that Josh is proselytizing at the kitchen table and we've done plenty of that and we've roped some people in, but for a lot of people, they're just going to have to see the number go through the roof for their curiosity to come back and then you can, you can
0: tell them what's up. And you know what? like It, it gets overused, but I just abs- I think the, the analogy is perfect, which is money is a form of measurement. And the reality is we shouldn't be trying to change the measurement when things don't line up. It's kind of like building a freaking house. If you need a six foot piece of lumber and you've got a five foot piece of lumber, you don't just regrade the five foot to now it's being six foot because your, your house is gonna be structurally unsound. It's gonna not be built properly. And so I think that this is what's happening in our current monetary system. We're using money as a form of measurement, but then we're going and changing the measurement every single time to meet our needs. Whereas when you have a fixed supply of 21 million, you have a sound measurement that actually relates to society. It allows us to actually build structurally.
2: Yeah, carpenters are gonna use that. Yeah. yeah, imagine as if the, like the, if the laws of physics were not set, and you couldn't design anything, you know, like you couldn't depend on aerodynamics actually being a thing tomorrow. So Boeing's not going to be able to design these airplanes that the doors fall off of, you know, with, <laughs> oh yeah. Anyway, that was, a that's an aside, but I'm going to, we're going to get to that eventually, but I want to go really cool. Let's do a spin move here and get to the four stages of economic ruin that you outline in this book, because there's a parallel to another four stages of ruin that I discovered in the last week that I
0: want to. I wanna get around to once you describe these. Well, so we we jumped into them briefly at the start, those four kind of stages, which were the misalignment reality. So as people know, naturally when technology is trying to drive down prices and we have a debt-based system, we're gonna have the government continue to intervene. And that leads to that death of creative destruction. We end up kind of impairing businesses to actually kind of compete on a level playing field because some are receiving subsidies, some are receiving bailouts, which then kind of alters that capital flow distortion. Money starts flowing towards unproductive businesses. And then finally, the decision-making impairment. How can we make accurate decisions in a world where we don't even know what should be surviving what shouldn't be surviving? But what is interesting is that the problem that I find with our current interventionistic approach is that interventionism begets interventionism. And that basically means mm. that when we have a socialist government, when we have an interventionistic government that wants to continue stepping in and propping up society and it starts taking on debt, the person who's next in line... It doesn't matter if they're left-right leaning, whether they're a Republican, Democrat, whether they're Labour, Conservative. They also have to either prop up the debt, they have to continue stepping in, or else the system collapses. And so the thing that's really challenging about this is that I believe, to be 100% we don't really have a democracy. They're always going to just continue to intervene. And so until you actually change the system, we're going to continue leaning further and further and further left. And this is a problem, because As we start leaning further and further left, as we start intervening more and more, as we expand the monetary supply and the purchasing power declines and asset prices rise, we have all of these byproducts, all of these symptoms in society. We're having huge wealth inequality because who holds the assets and who's also holding the currency, whose purchasing power is declining? was the lower class and the upper class? And then you talk about the parent-child bond is one thing that I touch on in the book. Naturally, when our purchasing power is declining, parents have to go out and work more. If parents are working more, then they're spending less time with their kids. And what is interesting, and here in Canada, and it's the same in the US, it's the same in kind of most other countries globally, we have seen in 1970, we had twice the amount of single-earner households than we do today. And we had half the amount of dual-earner households than we do today. So it's totally flipped. And it's flipped because parents cannot get by on a single-earner wage anymore. You have to have both people going out. And then you also see it on an environmental standpoint. When money is worth less over time because the government continues to intervene, well, we're incentivized to consume. And if we're consuming, We only have a finite amount of resources globally. And so the problem is we're pillaging these resources from this land because we're incentivized to consume. The inverse is true on something like Bitcoin. When you have a fixed supply that's increasing in purchasing power, you're now incentivized to save. So you're very conscious about where you direct your capital. If you're very conscious about where you direct your capital, then all of a sudden, there's going to be a lot less capital flooding towards businesses that are not offering value. Not only that, but the quality of product tends to rise because if there's less capital going towards business, businesses have to compete. Businesses have to compete, you have to outperform, quality starts to rise. So you start with all of these positive shifts in society when you actually just realign the incentives in society. And so I would say when we start intervening, it leads to these four stages of economic ruin. Misalignment to reality, death of creative destruction, capital flow distortion, and decision-making impairment. And this is why intervention doesn't work. And I would even say the same thing happens on many different levels. It happens on a health level. If you start getting a sore stomach, and the first thing you do is go to the doctor and then to take frickin' a pill to mask that sore stomach, you're not actually treating the actual issue. You're misaligned to reality. You're only masking the symptom. So all of a sudden, then you're not allowing your body to actually fix itself. You're not allowing yourself to actually figure out what the actual issue is. And that leads to a distortion of resources. Our our body is now trying to simply survive as opposed to trying to mend itself. And then that leads us to the decision-making impairment. We can't make accurate decisions because we don't know what's going on in our body, which leads to much worse outcomes in the long run. So although intervention seems yep. like the short-term best thing to do, ultimately it actually only just impairs our ability to make important decisions down the line, which is why I always kind of suggest on any decision, whether it's dietary, whether it's medical, whether it's monetary, just look at the root cause and put in the effort at the outset and try and actually figure out what is causing a certain symptom as opposed to just trying to treat the symptom.
2: Right. There's a there's a quote you have later in the book, which I really enjoyed, and I think it's applicable for what I'm about to say afterwards. It's don't be fooled that totalitarian structure structures are solely the product of evil individuals. They often stem from well-intentioned ideologies for the greater good, even if it means sacrificing individual rights and freedoms. So I, I'm, I read that and I'm thinking like, I, I think my mindship mind has changed over the years. Like I used to be much more conspiracy minded about all this stuff that there's a, you know, there's a cabal of evil people. And there's a lot of people that believe that there's this giant conspiracy to kind of ruin the United States of the Western world. So there's a KGB agent that defected in the 80s, and he had this four-step plan that he reportedly said the Soviets had for dismantling the America ideologically. And his name was... Hold on, let me get to it here in a second. Like I said, my notes are a bit of a mess. Um, Yuri Bezmanov. He defected from the KGB and described their Soviet plan to uh, to basically demoralize the United States. The first step was demoralization, which he said he believed was fairly well taken care of into the mid 80s that changed the perception of reality to such an extent that no one is able to be to come to sensible conclusions about defending themselves their family or their country followed by destabilization Uh. a two to five year period of targeted uh infrastructure elements in the u.s and then a crisis kind of like what happened in 9-11 like a very very Acute crisis where things could be very quickly moved, and then a normalization under an entirely new ideology. That would obviously be much more the conspiracy-minded side of this. Um, your four steps makes a lot more sense in my mind, just because it is incentive-guided. Like politicians are incentivized to create this monetary structure that allows them to pull levers and to get reelected every four years. But it is interesting to see. How some of these, I mean, how this could potentially have been engineered to some extent as well. Like, there's, I'm sure, some combination of these things and interests that are misaligned with ours. But it is crazy to watch it kind of, especially in the last 10 years. I feel like things have really morally devolved in this (laughs) country to a degree where we can't even agree on what a gender is. Like, science be damned. We're going to just claim, you know, that I'm a cat and that's a thing. Like, how did we get to this place? Like, it seems, so it seems like there could be more than money involved, but it, I mean, it also, I, I could see the argument being gone, gone either way. You know, one
1: observation I have, it, it, just to like push back a tad or play the other side of that, and I was talking about, who was I talking about? I think it was my dad recently. So it, morals are a fickle thing and they're totally at the eye of the beholder. Like it, it pe- when people go back and say like the good old days in the United States of America, well, like black people were drinking out of different water fountains in the good old days. Like we were overtly racist in a lot of ways. Like we've we've come a long way and I actually think if I'm going to shed the best light I can on the liberal agenda, I think most average liberals both sides are picking the craziest person from each side. But both most average liberals do care about other people. I think actually, there's a chance they care more about other people. They are, in some ways, others-focused and saying, "Hey, let's let's do this collectivist thing. We're all part of the same team. Let's help the other guy out." And even if you take th- like the most extreme things for a lot of conservatives, like the trans movement, they they come out of a desire to be inclusive and loving and caring. Now, I I don't land on a lot of those sides, and I can talk out the other side, but. I think the trajectory and the desire and the motivation behind some of this stuff, at least for the average person, is more pure than we give it credit for Mm -hmm. when we just pick the absolute crazies. The problem is, if we're to think higher level, a lot of this is just unworkable and eventually destructive. I mean, like we would all agree, you talk about intervention begetting intervention, socialism begetting socialism. The idea of being generous and giving someone something is awesome. But when that gets on a wide enough, broad enough scale, it creates such incentive dysfunction that it really unwinds society. And so that's where I think we just have to get back to brass tacks and nuts and bolts and say, this incentives rule the world. And when the incentives get a lot misaligned, and when people become unmotivated, and when zombies are allowed to persist for long periods of time and creative destruction isn't allowed, a lot of the things you've hit in this book it leads to long-term more and more destruction. The fires get bigger. The pain gets more dramatic. And it really feels like we're kind of at that tipping point. Is it? There's a lot of different ideas coming out there. But it, it's very clear that this money is a huge deal and the money is currently broken. And I think whether people like it or not, it is about to change dramatically because, just because of how broken it is. No,
0: and I think both you guys make phenomenal points. And it's so challenging because ultimately we can't prove whether it's one or the other. And I think it is some culmination of the two. But if there's one quote, and I think we've mentioned this on Bitcoin Basics series, it's the Ross Stevens rules over rulers. Like I wholeheartedly believe that we need a system built on rules instead of rulers, because what ends up happening is it realigns those incentives. The reason why we fall into, I would argue, one of the major reasons why we fall into a lot of the the more controlling totalitarian authoritarian structures that we see in society is because when we have a debt-based system naturally we're now incentivized to intervene if we've got companies that are too big to fail if they start failing and it starts bringing down society and all of a sudden you're going to be out of a job what are you going to do you're going to start bailing out those companies so as you start bailing out those companies you end up impairing as we talked about the four stages of economic ruin you start impairing creative destruction you start distorting capital flows you start uh, impeding your ability to make decisions. So all of a sudden, society starts breaking down. And then you start having all of these byproducts popping up, left, right, and center, all of these symptoms to a misaligned monetary system. But the problem is, you you now cannot let those byproducts and those symptoms actually play out, because otherwise they too are going to corrupt your system. So what do you start doing? You start regulating. You start putting regulations here, there, left, right, and center. And then what ends up happening? Well, you look at the US, just by walking into a hospital, the average patient, I think, before they've even seen a doctor spend something like twelve hundred US dollars on basically just filings. That's insane. And that's because of regulation impeding efficiency. And then you also see the growing uh, regulatory environment. You start seeing growing uh, accountants, growing like this, that, uh, administrators. And we're not actually adding value to society. And it's all because of this burdensome system that is basically collapsing in on itself. But those at the top continue to intervene because otherwise they're going to lose power. So the challenge is, I think they have certain incentives to continue to intervene, and those certain incentives to continue to intervene mean they're going to have to continue to restrict our rights and freedoms in order to stop society from collapsing, which leads to the totalitarian environment. It leads to the controlling structure. Right. And what is also interesting is actually even talking about kind of the the LGBTQ, the the, the trans movement, is that when you actually go back through history, a lot of these controlling structures have actually used that. And this is where I start think it starts to lean more into, is there... A group at the top, and this is where, like Mao Zedong, used to use a lot of the 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 what is it called? The like trans movement, the identifying as the opposite sex, or used a lot of this as a way to be really? able to garner control. Because naturally, if we start losing desire for the opposite sex, if we start breaking down society, you start breaking down trust, desire in society. Who do you start looking to? You start looking to the state. When you start looking to the state, naturally they garner power. We've seen this happen in multiple occasions. You saw it in Stalin era. I think you even started to see Hitler was actually very opposed to it, but he saw it percolating up through society in the Jewish population in a uh, in one book that I was reading. Whether that's true or not, I'm not 100% sure. But what's interesting is you just start to see a lot of these environments popping up in order to garner control. So I think that it's a it's a hybrid between the two of them.
2: Yeah, I'm glad we got to Hitler because <laughs> that's kind of been a intertwined with the next question I wonder, or the next thing I want to talk about which is mass formation this crowd this basically the drudgery of crowds when basically crowds are as smart as the dumbest person in them and they seem to get together and create situations that are just otherwise mind-blowing like I remember learning about what Hitler did to the Jews during the holocaust Mm -hmm. and wondering how could that ever happen and obviously that would never happen again but then Having lived through COVID, I remember talking to one of my good friends at the peak of it saying, "I get it now. I understand how a civilization or a group of people can be so twisted that they could somehow convince themselves or rationalize themselves that we all need to, you know, form an alliance against this minority group of people and do things to them that otherwise in a normal climate would seem absolutely irrational and crazy." I mean, we were we were like it felt like 6 months away from Putting people that didn't get vaccinated in ovens at one point, like people were t- people were talking about not allowing these people in ICU beds. Like- people were talking about not admitting them to hospitals, not giving them surgeries, like literally taking away human rights for people that just didn't agree with taking a vaccination that they didn't believe had enough testing done to be safe. Give us a little bit of an insight into how this kind of crowd mentality works, um, in general, because it, sure. it is an interesting psychological
0: experiment or so there's a book experiment. When, when it's interesting because a lot of this only came to me during the pandemic when actually you started to experience this firsthand yeah we all did it's and it's mind-blowing because i think that we often believe that we're this constantly improving society and you look back and you're like oh that's from the dark ages that happened hundreds, thousands of years ago. That would never happen today. We would never dip witches in water anymore and drown <laughs> them to make sure they weren't witches. It's, it's insane. And then you actually see it starting to play out and you're just like, what is happening? And half the population have blinders on. And so there's a guy called Matthias Desmet who kind of became quite famous during the pandemic because he was a professor of psychology at Ghent University in, in Belgium, I believe. And he wrote a book called The Psychology of Totalitarianism. He's kind of the foremost expert on totalitarianism in society. And he discusses that in all totalitarian environments from his research, there's kind of four stages that are present. And so the first stage is you have to go through a period of uh, loneliness. People have to feel alone. People have to feel like they don't have that collaboration, that support from others, those relationships. And if they start feeling alone, well, naturally there's stage two, there's meaninglessness. If they're feeling alone and they're feeling like they're not a productive asset of society, they're not contributing, then all of a sudden meaninglessness starts to set in. And then from there, you get to condition three, which is widespread free-floating anxiety. If they don't understand why they're feeling anxious, why they're feeling depressed, why they're not contributing to society, it doesn't make sense, then free-floating anxiety uh, kind of starts to kind of set in. And free-floating anxiety is different from fixed anxiety. Fixed anxiety is, let's say you break up with your girlfriend. You have a fixed reason. You have have something you can identify this anxiety with. Free-floating anxiety is when it just seems very abstract. You don't really know why you're feeling the way you're feeling. And then lastly, that leads to condition four or stage four, which is aggression and frustration. When you've got this loneliness, you've got meaninglessness, you've got widespread free floating anxiety, then aggression and frustration, and you want to kind of take it out. And basically what he says in the book, if I kind of quote him, he says, if under the aforementioned circumstances, a suggestive story is spread through the mass media that indicates an object of anxiety, and at the same time offers a strategy to deal with the object of anxiety there is a real chance that all the free-floating anxiety will attach itself to this object and there'll be a broad social support for the implementation of the strategy to control the object of anxiety. So all of a sudden you start to see the general population will latch onto any story that supposedly is the reason why they're feeling all of these things. But what is interesting, and this is what I talk about in the book, is I think he's missing one stage. And I think that stage is condition zero. Or
2: you wear a mask in your car by yourself.
0: That that is yeah,
2: That's stage five. <laughs> that's stage five. <laughs> I, uh, by the way, I've been I've been staring.
1: I've been staring. Sorry, at these I didn't people. want to
2: derail you, Seb. You were about to say something important, and I just completely derailed well, it you, with you a dumb it. joke. No, that's but, it. You go- okay, perfect. <laughs> the
1: other the other day, I stopped at a light, and I just said, "I'm normally not that confrontational, but I I I literally lo- just looked at this lady, and I was like, I like kind of pushed my head forward like a turtle, and was, like, what are you doing? You're alone in your vehicle wearing a fucking mask. God, these people are just. Have
0: you seen a video of this guy swimming in this pool? Have you seen this? He's swimming in the pool. I don't think there's another person in the pool, and he's got a mask on swimming in a pool. And you're just like,
2: <laughs> "What is going?" I just hope he chokes to death
1: on <laughs> <at> it. <laughs> what is going on? I
0: mean, it's literal brain.
1: Like, it's a little brainwashing. Totally. It, and the interesting I mean, it thing from our vantage point is, we're around this stuff a ton as medics i mean especially this time of year josh it's it's crazy yeah, every dude, other call, the hospital
2: had a nine hour wait yesterday nine, nine hours uh, yeah, yeah anyway.
1: it's upper respiratory galore we do wear masks on purpose because we're paramedics we understand how things spread we we take precautions where necessary we're around it all the time we have a so i'm just people they're they're dislocation from reality of what they should be afraid of it- and where and when they should be afraid of it is so dramatic right now. Mostly my reaction is just laughing, slight annoyance. But other times, like, this is sad. This is a product of several years of brainwashing
2: to where people are,
1: they they literally just want to be little cucks in their cars with the fucking blue mask on their nose. It makes them feel it's secure. Nice.
2: I appreciate the fact that they identify themselves for us though, because I can immediately know that that person is a complete moron. Like if you're doing that, <laughs> you have such a weak mental constitution that you're just gonna unveil it for everybody to know immediately. Like that's convenient for me to know, so that's I can free, avoid that. Let's free car. some
1: people from bondage. If you are yeah. alone in an environment, you don't need a
0: mask. You can take off free that mask. Yourself. If you're we driving your car, you.
2: listening to this right now, wearing a mask, just jerk the wheel.
0: <laughs> you know, to play devil's advocate, if I'm to play devil's advocate, it's and I'm not supporting the mask. Do not support the mask. It's more as when our monetary environment is so poor, where we're, our cost of living is slowly going up, we have less and less time to rationally think about what we're actually freaking doing. And this is this is why these environments come about, is I was going to mention just before you stepped in there, Josh, there is a condition zero. <laughs> and that condition zero is a broken monetary environment. If you, have, if you don't have a broken monetary environment, if you've got a monetary environment where people can save, people can actually contribute to society, people can actually try and get ahead in life, it's far less likely to have a majority of a population feeling loneliness, meaninglessness, widespread anxiety, aggression, frustration. Mm -hmm. So I would say that the condition zero to be able to kind of precede all of these is broken monetary system. But this goes back to that point, which is I think that one of the issues is and why these mass formations, why these big group mobs mentalities happen is because in our current monetary system, people don't have time. It's insane. Like People are they're getting home, they're so destroyed after working their 10, 12 hour shift and they're just sitting there and watching Netflix and they just want to kind of yeah. mong out before they go to bed and then wake up and then repeat and repeat and repeat. So in an environment mm. where we have less time, we have less time to critically think about the information we're consuming. Exactly. And that is what ultimately leads to these environments where you have controlling structures that can spread a narrative that has very little basis in reality.
2: I know, I know we've gone off on this before, at least I have, about the whole trust the science TM like that whole, like that triggers me and I hate to use the word triggered because that just sounds like such a woke thing to say, but the word triggered triggers you, <laughs> the word triggered triggers me, um, saying trust the science is so antithetical to science itself that it it's just preposterous. <laughs> like you, you have to understand that science is about questioning everything, especially science. So if you can't question science, you know, you're living in a, some kind of pseudo totalitarian zone when anyone starts saying shit like that. Because science should be open for anyone to criticize for any reason, for any stupid reason, and you should be able to make your own um, conclusions based on the facts, not on the, the experts' opinions of the facts. It's a very different thing.
0: Well, and, and it goes back yeah. to as well, like we see it in, when you have a controlling regulatory environment, and the one thing I should preface this with is, I don't 100% know where I stand. I don't think it's black or white where you have zero regulation, or you have a ton of regulation. And I think when you have zero regulation, there are challenges with, even with a capitalist environment, if we have zero regulation, then people are going to destroy the environment and pillage things because it's actually advantageous for them to do so. There's no consequence to doing that. So do we need some form of regulation to be able to uh, minimize destruction of certain environmental areas? I'd say there's
2: some kind of bell curve there that's, I mean, the problem is nobody can put their finger on it, you know? We need a free market to regulate the free market. That's... Or the uh, regulation of the free market.
0: It's, <laughs> it's, and it, it's super it's super challenging. It's super challenging because we see it in, say, the medical environment where when you have a heavy-handed regulatory environment in the medical environment, all of a sudden we're seeing, let's say, take Canada, for example. Canada put through a bill a little while back that said something along the lines of, if you're a doctor and you don't support vaccines, you can have up to six months in prison, $250,000 fine and lose your license to practice. What? And you're just like- That's insane. Well, what if you're a holistic doctor? What if you believe by actually treating the root cause and supporting people's immune system? And so what's really challenging is you're not actually allowing people to pursue what they're passionate about and allow value to rise up. You're actually just saying everyone has to believe a certain thing and this is truth, regardless of whether it actually is truth.
2: There's also, like the FDA approves all these medical devices in the US. Our monitors we use on the ambulance are a great example of this. They cost a ridiculous amount of money for what they actually are. I mean, tons of R&D goes into these things clearly. Clearly, But they take, you know, five years to get approved by the FDA. And I was wondering the other day, why are these things so big and heavy? Like we've got technology like my iPhone is a thousand times more advanced than whatever's inside this this monitor we use. But the problem is, is that that monitor was R&D, say, 15 years ago. It went through the FDA 10 years ago. It got approved. And now they are not going to mess with this thing for another 10 or 15 years because there's such a barrier for them to get through. That it's just not economical. So now, I'm sorry, this monitor costs $25,000 and it's probably 10-year-old technology. We, we could make it better, faster, cheaper, but there's this huge impediment, which should be there. They should be making sure these things work properly, obviously, but there's such a high bar to entry that there's there can't be competition and they have to cost a lunatic amount of money. Yeah. Seb, to
1: your point a second ago about regulation... The older and and hopefully wiser I get, the the more I have realized that the, that the truth or whatever that word means, almost always lies
2: somewhere in a gray zone it, of at least truth, partial. It's not the truth; truth. it's your truth,
1: <laughs> exactly. Which I actually think has got some likes to it for sure, <laughs> because I I think to say that it, this is truth in general, and just to whip that out is kind of like saying trust the science. Like truth in itself isn't unbelievably loaded word. And whatever that word means often lies somewhere in the gray. It's it's hard to... So yeah, I mean, when people reach demonstrative conclusions, let's just take the mask example. I'm pissed about COVID. There was tons of overreach. So I'm never going to wear a mask again. Probably <laughs> not like wise that. if you're in front of somebody coughing with tuberculosis. You know what I mean? So it's like, folks, let's start to realize that extremes are easy to latch onto. The handles are robust and tacky. You can get your hand on there and it makes you feel real secure on the wild train that is life. But that's often not Literally. where wisdom truly lies. Get back in the middle of that thing. Start, start using your balance. Get your core involved because
0: that's where the real discussions mm-hmm. start. Oh, I, 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 like I could not agree more. And, and you see it in society the challenging thing is when we have less time, we want things to be laid out for us. We want it to be black or white. And so you're either supporting uh, Israelis or you're supporting Palestine. You're either supporting the vaccine or you're anti-vax. You're either supporting Russia or you're supporting Ukraine. And it's just- And you
2: don't know anything about any of those things. You're just supporting whatever you feel like is the the people that, your tribe is supporting this. So that's what I'm- Totally.
0: And and one, one more example that I think is really fascinating is you start diving into how these regulations, how these subsidized environments end up kind of altering how we see the world is you just look at the food industry. Like in around the 40s and 50s, the government started subsidizing grain production. And grain, even today, 97% of all food subsidies go towards grain. But what is interesting is during the 40s and 50s, the government started subsidizing grain. So what do farmers do now? Well, farmers make way better margins on grain given the subsidies than they do on any other crops. So then they start making grain. So then as they start making grain, you start getting these absolute megalith corporations like Quakers and Kellogg's. And all of a sudden they have all this capital to spend. So then they start lobbying the government. They start lobbying the FDA. And all of a sudden, they start creating the food pyramid. And the food pyramid, they say, at the base of the food pyramid, what do you need? You need grain. And they start putting out all of these. They start sponsoring all of these um, studies to kind of prove this point. But a lot of this is, its there's certain incentives. There's no basis behind these studies. So now we've said animal products are bad. Saturated fats are bad. We're not allowed to have animal products. They cause heart disease. We've been eating this stuff for millions of years. And now all of a sudden, we're feeding the general population grain. And now we've got mass obesity, mass diabetes, mass health issues since transitioning predominantly to a grain diet and everyone's scared of a fat diet and everyone's got all these fat free diets. And you realize that all of these subsidies basically created these corporations that allowed them to lobby government to change how we perceive the world with no real basis or factual kind of standing. And, and I think that people don't understand at the root of many of these things is money. It is a broken monetary system that is allowing regulatory environments to slowly creep across society.
2: Yeah, it's kind of a weird counterintuitive thing to think about because I could see an argument being made as well that having these regulate regulatory bodies just allows the manipulation from another angle. Mm-hmm. Like If you just have a pure free market where people can just, you know, do whatever it is they want and they could, you know, pollute the rivers and do whatever it's the The regulatory bodies can be co opted as well, and they can look the other way, and, and then it becomes. I don't. I, the answer is I don't know what the real this answer is. is because, in either direction, things can be manipulated easily. So it's it's a very nuanced, very
0: difficult topic to get to a real mm-hmm. bedrock on. The one thing I would say yeah. is, I think if you were to separate money from state, the state would have far less capital, and if the state has far less capital, it has to compete. On the same level as a lot of businesses so it has to be fiscally responsible so if it has to be fiscally responsible then it has to be a lot more conscious about where it directs capital in terms of regulatory agencies you name it so if regulatory agencies are very restricted on how much capital they have they're going to be a lot more conscious about which regulations are going to make the biggest difference and save the most amount of lives or reduce the most amount of incidences and you see it the same thing in the medical environment i think if we had a medical system whereby the government was impeded on its ability to spend endlessly, well, all of a sudden, you've now got to think about, how do I actually create the healthiest society? Well, we've got to think long-term. We've got to look at dietary. We've got to look at exercise. We've got to look at relationships rather than, I'm just going to give you a pill for this. And so I think that it changes the incentives and realigns the incentives towards value as opposed to just intervention, which is our current system.
2: Yeah, mm-hmm. and it is sticking bubblegum all the way up on, in that system as well because like the revolving door between the FDA and say mm-hmm. Pfizer and Moderna mm-hmm. You, you've got to say, OK, well, now we are banning any kind of movement from the FDA over to Moderna, but then you cause some other unforeseen problem that you have to later bandaid over that. And it just is a never ending circle of trying to fix the problems you've created with more regulation. it and It just goes, you know, there's just no way to end it. Right, right. There's a lot more I want to get to, but I say
1: we wrap this. We're 120 in. And it's been outstanding. And we're gonna we're gonna have you and Daz on again here soon. Yeah. So sure. I think I might save some of the uh, the leftovers here for next time we talk. Seb, hand off to the book, the other things you're working on, anything you want to say to our audience as we part ways here. No
0: man, first off, honestly, I, I truly appreciate you guys having me on. This is by far my favorite pod, And I love the just the more casual conversation. Um, and yeah if people are interested in the book you can find it it should be on Amazon globally depending on wherever you are in the world uh, you can also find us uh, my p- business partner Daz and I we oh yeah, and I should say the name just in case you forgot it. it's the hidden cost of money uh, you can my p- business partner Daz and I we founded a little um, company called Looking Glass Education with Greg Foss and that whole idea is to create content that is digestible for the average individual so if you want to find us you can go at lookingglasseducation.com or just find me on saidbunny b-u-n-n-e-y at twitter or my website saidbunny.com where i have a blog and i talk about this kind of stuff because we i think that when we talk about money it's so easy to get lost in the economy get lost in the tiny fine print of the Mm. numbers when i think being able to tie back to things that impact us our behavior how we show up in the world our relationships i think is so important and so i talk a lot about this obviously in the book and i talk about it on my blog so give me a shout but thanks a lot guys
2: for sure yeah this thing's going on of recommended uh reading for our listeners.
1: Sure is. Sure is. By the way, that shit has come full circle. Uh moments Ooh, after that's we why hang you up to here I'm probably so gonna properly. have a yeah gonna have a <laughs> blowout in the uh first floor stall here. Upstairs, Seb. Thanks man. Right, Love you, then. appreciate you. We'll talk to you nice soon. Nice lot, guys.
2: Take care, man. Don't push too hard. Hemorrhoids <laughs> are not fun. I know. I know. <laughs> See you guys. We hope you enjoyed that episode. Seb is a great guy. He is as much fun to talk to as he is to listen to. If you have not tried out Fountain for listening to podcasts, give it a shot. You can get paid some stats while you listen to your favorite podcast. It doesn't cost you anything, but you get paid. Thanks for joining us. We will see you next time.
0: We'll